0: Possible messages. So I'm, I'm going to do the same here and give you a choice, okay? Um, the first choice is I can preach an ear-tickling, flesh-pleasing, compromised, American, watered-down gospel message, or I could bring you the truth from the Word. Which would you prefer? The truth from the Word. Okay, all right. Fair enough. I asked. All right, let's, let's pray. Thank You, Lord. Thank You, Lord. Father, give us ears to hear what Your Spirit is saying. Lord, sometimes there's one message, there's, there's one sentence, there's one word that speaks to us and, and changes our lives forever. I pray that some here would be changed forever by the simple truths of Your Word. You're a great and mighty God. You can do all things. Give us ears to hear what Your Spirit is saying. In Jesus' name, Amen. Matthew chapter 25. Matthew 25. I was preaching in San Diego years ago. And made reference to the verse that spoke of David serving the purposes of the Lord for his generation. And it was in the days before emails, we received a fax from the church secretary saying, I've searched my concordance, I've looked everywhere in the Old Testament, I can't find that verse. And I said, oh, it's in Acts. It's in the New Testament. Acts 13. David served the purpose of the Lord for his generation. And then he died. There was a divine assignment, a divine purpose, a divine plan. And he was there for a specific season and for a specific reason. And it wasn't just because he was David. We know about him because he was David. We read about him. But what was true of Him is true for all of us. We are here with one life to live. Driving here, I mentioned to to Jeff and David that if Jesus is not coming for a thousand years, I still live with a sense of urgency because I only have one lifetime. And the needs around us are urgent. Our missions director, Josh Peters, said some months ago, I don't know if this is the last generation, but it's our last generation, it's true for all of us. We will only be here for one season of life, and we have a divine purpose in being here. No one is here by accident. Even if you're the product of a rape, you're not here by accident. God brought every one of us into this world, and at the end of our lives, we'll stand before Him and give account. Matthew 25, beginning in verse 14. Jesus speaking about the kingdom of heaven, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents. It's not talking about talents in terms of gifts and abilities, but talents in terms of a certain amount of money. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, each according to his ability. So each one having certain abilities, being made and wired certain ways, certain life experience, based on that, he gave a certain amount of money to each of them. Then he went away. He who had received five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So let's say he had been given $50,000 to work with, and then he invested that money, and the $50,000 became 100000 so also he who had the two talents made two talents more. So the 20000 he invested and it turned into 20000 more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. There are several parables where it speaks about the master or the king or the lord or the leader being away for a long time. It's a hint for the believers there that the return of Jesus may not be as quick as they expect it to be. It's one thing to be faithful and zealous over a short period of time. It's another thing to be faithful and zealous over a long period of time. It's another thing to be faithful and zealous when it doesn't look like you're being watched as carefully as you once were. So after a long time, he comes back and he wants to settle accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I've made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the jar of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered me two talents. Here I've made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the jar of your master." The idea that God has gifted us with opportunities and abilities and spiritual gifts and life experience and that at the end, when He returns, we will stand and give account to Him. If we are believers, we're not giving account for our sins. Our sins have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And if we're saved, when we stand before Him, He won't say, what about this sin and this sin and this sin and this sin? If we've repented and turned to Him, we've been washed and cleansed. But we will give account for what we did in our bodies. And because most believers are just thrilled that we won't face God as the judge who will cast us into judgment, that we won't stand before Him and give account for our sins that we're saved and washed, a lot of us forget about the fact that one day we still will stand before Him. Let me just show you a couple of verses here. Romans chapter 14. Look at what Paul writes there. Romans chapter 14. Verse 10, and he's speaking to believers here. Each of us will give an account of himself to God. You won't be able to hold someone's hand there. You won't be able to hire a slick defense attorney. You won't be able to to plead for for more time. Can we put this off for a little while? I brought a message this morning called No Excuses. and talked about Jesus amazingly compassionate and kind and merciful to the point of dying for the crimes that we committed, paying the penalty for our sins. We sinned. He died. So compassionate, reaching out to the marginalized and the hurting, and yet He never tolerated excuses because He saw through things and He knew the reality of life. When we stand before God, we won't be able to make excuses and we certainly won't be able to accuse Him. I mean, think of what happens in the Garden of Eden. The snake seduces Eve, gets her to sin. She in turn invites Adam to sin, and he sins. and God says to Adam, "What did you do?" And what's Adam's response? "The woman you gave me." She maybe. Who me... did I ask for a woman? Did I say I needed a companion? I enjoyed hanging out with the panda bear. I didn't need a person, I didn't need a mate. The woman you gave me. Then he says to the woman, what did you do? It's a snake. Snake you put in the garden. When we stand before God, there won't be excuses. We won't be able to accuse others. We won't be able to blame others. At that moment, we will see with stark clarity that we were all able to do what God called us to do. He's never asked us to do anything that He won't equip us and help us to do. If He's given us an assignment with His grace and help, we can get it done. He's never told me to to jump and and touch the ceiling with the tip of my finger and hang there for ten minutes unless He's given me the ability to do it. Take a look in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians 5. Beginning in verse 6, he's talking about being absent from the body as being present with the Lord. Verse 6 So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. We're all going to stand before God and give account. He's going to say, I entrusted you with this. What did you do with it? I gave this to you. What did you do with it? I gave you this assignment. Were you faithful to it? And He's not going to ask how we did in some other area that He didn't call us to. Or how wonderfully we excelled here when the calling was here. One of the saintliest men that I ever knew was Leonard Ravenhill, author of the book Why Revival Tarries that was a classic in the last generation. A man of incredible prayer, deep prayer, broken-hearted prayer. Sometimes when he would minister to crowds, 1,500 leaders, he couldn't finish his message because conviction would get so thick, people would start running to the altar and getting out in the aisles and getting on their faces and crying out to God as he was preaching. I knew him the last five years of his life from the ages of 82 to 87. He was a frail, old man, physically weak, but full of the Spirit. And he often taught and spoke on the judgment seat of Christ both for the believer and for the unbeliever. The different aspects of it. And when I'd go and spend a few days with him, we'd often pray together and then certain times of the day he would just get alone and pray. It was his discipline. It didn't matter who he was with. He would break away and pray. And sometimes he'd come back from praying and, and he'd just be so anguished and shocked. He'd say, Mike, the church is asleep. This was as if it was the first time he had ever seen it. It's the same he said, but The church is naked. She doesn't know it. He was so sobered by these things. And he talked about Jonathan Edwards, one of the, the leaders of the Great Awakening in the 1700s in America, and how Jonathan Edwards used to pray stamp eternity on my eyes. Stamp eternity on my eyes. The first correspondence I ever had with him there it was, his standard question. It was on his letterhead. Are the things you're living for worth Christ dying for? Are the things you're living for worth Christ dying for? That's what's inscribed, his, his epitaph at his gravesite. Are the things you're living for worth Christ dying for? There was a quote from a Methodist preacher, W.E. Sangster, in one of his books I memorized many years ago, probably 20 years ago. Sangster was a Methodist preacher. And he said, How shall I feel at the judgment if multitudes of missed opportunities pass before me in full review and all my excuses prove to be disguises of my cowardice and pride? Brother Len had a stroke in September of 94 at the age of 87. Never came out of it never came out of the coma that followed the stroke until he went to be with the Lord in November of that year. His wife Martha told me that he was non-responsive, but if a family member would take his hand, he would squeeze it. But if they put hymns up, he would lift one hand and kind of conduct. (laughs) But she said something to me that was very sobering to hear. She said, "It's good that he had those months to prepare to meet God." Thinking, Brother Len lived a saintly, broken-hearted life of deep intercession and intimacy with Jesus. Man of deep fellowship with the Lord and prayer and the Word. Sometimes young ministers would come to him and, and ask him for counsel, and he would recommend that they read a few books. These big, thick books, with small print, written by Puritans several hundred years ago. I mean, in our day, we get through about three lines and we think we've, you know, we like the bite-sized version. Table of contents will do it for us. One of the books was by a Puritan author named Isaac Ambrose, 700 pages long, called Looking Unto Jesus. It was a 700-page exposition of the words, Looking Unto Jesus. That's one of the books that Len encouraged young men of God to read. I mean, this, is, this was the way he lived. This was his mindset. And yet, Martha was thinking it's good he had a couple of months to prepare before he met God. Before, I was in, quote, full-time ministry, what we call full-time ministry in the States, although really all of us are called to full-time ministry when I was working in the secular world, I had several different sales jobs. Commissioned sales jobs. And one of them was selling baby pictures. (laughs) Yep. Worked with this company where family has a baby. Maybe the baby's six weeks old and you get a free picture. And this was in the days really before you go to the department stores and, and you know the Walmart and those kind of places and they just have a place where you can get all these baby pictures, family pictures for a few dollars and it was obviously in the days before digital pictures and things like that so someone would come to your home, professional photographer, and take all these pictures and then as soon as they were ready I, I would come back and then you got a free picture but the goal was to sell things and, and I had bought when, when we had our first baby I did that so that was my job And I would see, say, an average about 45 customers a week, maybe 50. I worked about four and a half days a week. I'd go to graduate school the other half day, married with two kids. And selling baby pictures is not exactly the job of a lifetime. And it was not exactly this high-pressure situation where if I didn't quite measure up, I was going to have to stand before some five-star general. Or some tribunal. It was just a sales manager named Bernie Cohen. And on Thursday nights, Bernie would call all the salespeople and ask them how we did through that week. So we were going to have Friday morning and then come into the office and settle up and everything. But I knew Thursday nights he's going to call. Just a regular guy. Bernie Cohen. Americana Photos. That was the company. His brother Milt owned it. The main guy that ran the office was Mort Wiener. It was kind of a Jewish <laughs> operation. And, you know, some weeks, maybe I got a flat tire or I got behind for some reason and got out late one day or just wasn't as productive. Or I saw a good number of people, but the sales just didn't go so well. And I know he's going to call on a Thursday night. And I would always let it ring a little bit more with the hope that he would not stay online. It was also in the days before caller ID, but I had a pretty good hunch it was him at a certain time. I'd let it ring a little longer. And then when I'd pick it up and he was still there, How you doing, Mike? Oh, good, good. And then I'd just start to talk about everything else. And then when he'd say, okay, how did sales go this week? You're supposed to say, I saw this amount of people for this amount. I saw 45 people for $2,500, whatever it was. And I would start to give a breakdown of the week. Well, you know, um, there's actually some extra traffic. I wasn't, it? well, did the tire, didn't get, yeah, you know, had to take care of. And I'd give all these excuses. And then I'd finally get to the numbers and tell him, and, you know, we'd have a constructive talk about it. If I had a good week, the moment that phone rang, pick it up instantly. Hey, Bernie, 48 people, 3,200. You know, whatever it was, just tell them instantly. And I began to think, if, if that was so intimidating, having a phone call from Bernie Cohn from Americana Photos to ask me how I did that week, I, I wonder how sobering it's going to be to stand before God. Look, he's not always this toothless grandfather like, oh, how cute you are. And we can picture him a certain way, but it's not who he is. He's perfect love, but, but he's not some pansy. He, he, he's not someone that's taken advantage of. And, and even though we're not going to be sentenced to hell for failing in our mission even though if we are His people and die in relationship with Him, we'll be with Him forever and ever. This is meant to be very sobering, the way it's spoken of in the Word here. The way Paul speaks about it. And these parables that Jesus gives with these exaggerated pictures, I say exaggerated because the Master is is a hard man who's not even fair. And Jesus is using that as an example, not that God is like that, but to give us sobriety, about not being lazy? Notice the person who's slothful, he also says is wicked. When you read the book of Proverbs, the person that's lazy and irresponsible is, is, is acting wickedly. Is acting in a way that's not righteous. Take a look with me in Ephesians, the fifth chapter. Ephesians chapter 5. During the worship, I was thinking of a passage in 1 Kings 19 after has called down fire from heaven and had the miraculous occurrences on Mount Carmel and puts the 850 false prophets to death and then prophesies the coming rain to end the drought. And the rain comes. And then the next chapter, he finds out Jezebel is ready to kill him. And it's this, this post prophetic victory depression that hits him and fear, and he flees for his life. And God sends him to, to the Mount of God, to Mount Horeb. And when he's there, the first question the Lord asks him is, Why are you here? Why are you here? And suddenly those words were just echoing in my mind for me and for all of us on a broader level about here in this world. Why are you here? Why, why are you here? Why are you here? For this congregation? For you individually? Why why are you here? Why are we here? What's the purpose of it all? If our mentality is, let us eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die, that's that's the mentality of carnality and flesh. Why are you here? I'll read from Ephesians 5 in a moment. But it's important to understand what God's purposes for our lives are. You may not have the long-term, large vision that may not have been revealed to you yet. It may be something that unfolds over a period of time. But certainly we need to know, here and now, why we're here, what our mission is. Many of the, the ladies graduated from our ministry school and then had families, began to have kids, went through somewhat of a a traumatic time. And we asked some of them, what if we prepared you for that traumatic time in advance, would you have been ready? And the answer was no, because we wouldn't have believed you. And then we still would have had to experience it. But the trauma was, as one of our ladies put it, I went from changing the world to changing diapers. You know, I'm going to go out and be this world changer and have this amazing mission and God's going to use me. Next thing I'm dealing with little kids running around being silly and changing diapers. Then they probably moved their vision from changing the world one diaper at a time, kind of modified it. But then they began to say, okay, I have a purpose. I have a purpose as a mom. I have a purpose as a wife. And, and then I'm going to involve my kids in this purpose, and together we're going to be involved in the purposes of God. I began to take hold of it. And then things can change. Things change as you get older, as, as you have more wisdom and responsibility, as doors open, as, as kids get older. Different things unfold. We understand that. But it should be that, that every year at the end of the year, we could stand before God and He could say, oh, okay, have you been faithful to your assignment? And we should know what our assignments are. We should know what it is that God's called us to do. First Corinthians 9 Paul urges the Corinthians to run their race so as to win, but he's telling each of them individually, run your race so as to win. I can't do what you can do and you can't do what I can do. If we switch places, we'd have a crisis pretty quickly. But we're each in a race. You say, man, that puts pressure on me. There should be some holy pressure. Our mentality should be, I come to a place of rest in Jesus, knowing my sins are forgiven, knowing I'm washed clean with His blood, Knowing I'm accepted by the Father. I'm beloved in His sight. I'm a child in whom He takes delight. I'm His. I'm resting in Him from, from the efforts to strive in some carnal way to get Him to accept me or love me. I'm His. From that position of rest, now we get up and run. And, and the New Testament is filled with imagery like that. First Corinthians 9, Run your race so as to win. Hebrews 12, Run with patience the race that's set before you. Philippians three. This one thing I do. I, I press forward. I lean forward like a runner trying to press through at the finish line. We're in a race. We have a task. We have an assignment. Paul talks about in Acts twenty twenty four when he knows he's going to Jerusalem and could face real danger there. He said, I'm "Not concerned about that. My own life is worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the task and complete the race the Lord Jesus has given me." The task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. What does he say in, in 2 Timothy, 4th chapter? He knows he's going to be executed soon. What does he say? He's come to the end here. He, he has, he's run the race, he's finished the course. When I was, uh, when I was a, a boy, I was pretty good at math. And my dad said, All right, let's do a little test. Our grandson Andrew, who just turned nine, has always asked me to give him math problems. Red haired, freckle faced little guy, very fast, very full of himself. He's asking me questions the other day, out of the blue. You know, standard little kid questions, but out of the blue. He's in the car with him, Grandpa. Animals go to heaven. We see pets in heaven. Standard question. Grandpa, are our brains like different in heaven? And I said, well, Andrew, I said, we only use about 10% of our brains now. He goes, but I'm good in math. <laughs> anyway, this little grandfather story. In. So, my dad says, Right, right, let's try this. Here's an elevator, five people get on, first floor. Goes up to the third floor, four people get off, two people get on. Goes up to the seventh floor, three people get off, eight people get on. And he just goes through this whole thing, goes up to this, so I'm calculating, on. Got, got it, got it, got it, got it, got it, gets to the end, and I know, whatever, there are six people left on the elevator. And he says, how many stops did the elevator make? That's not what I was computing. I mean, that was the whole trick. That, that what I thought the test was was not the test. God's not out to trick us, friends. But like I said, God's not asking how we did in some field He didn't assign us to be in. If He assigned you to be some prayer warrior and, and your prayers were going to be essential for a mission to move forward and He gifted you to do it and He enabled you to do it and you had time to do it, And the more you pressed in, the more time he was going to give you. And you could really touch God in prayer. But you got really fascinated with with understanding how ministries have interacted in Uganda and decided to get a Ph.D. in Ugandan ministry studies. And you present that to him. He said, no, this is what I was asking you to do. How many stops did the elevator make? This, This was your assignment over here. So, look at what Paul writes in Ephesians, the fifth chapter, beginning in verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Making the best use of the time. There's a time to rest, there's a time to be renewed. There's a time with family to have fun. There's a time to take vacations. You know, years passed in my life. I didn't like the word vacation. That, that was almost as if I wasn't pushing hard enough or running hard enough. And there was a period of, I don't know, seven years where in terms of, of actually taking a break, Nancy and I going away on formal vacation days, we probably did it like seven days total in seven years or something. And I was kind of proud of that. Well, it was just stupid. That was just a stupid mentality. And when finally God dealt with me about that and, and we were taking our first break, we were taking a while, and it was going to be a two-week vacation and a good part of that, we were going to go away. And I heard my secretary of the next office when we lived in Pensacola answer the phone. And someone wanted to see me. She said, oh, Dr. Brown's going to be on vacation that week. He's like, oh, don't say vacation! So I realized that was a bad, don't say vac- it's like I, I don't take vacations. But man, that's flesh. That's just pride and wrong attitude and flesh. There are times when I intentionally say, okay, time to chill. I'm not going to push. I'm not going to write. I'm not going to study now. I'm just going to chill. But the reason for it is so I can run better the next day. Because we do have a limited time on the earth. We do have a limited opportunity to bear fruit. We do have a limited opportunity to reach hurting people. We do have a limited opportunity to, to win the loss. We do have a, a limited opportunity to be to be tested in battle combat, spiritually speaking, and to make a difference. C.T. Studd was a famous cricket player in England. Cricket being a, a tremendously popular sport, especially the 1800s, still to this day, much of the world, it's followed fanatically just like some of our American sports have followed fanatically. He had been raised in a very, very wealthy home. No sin in that whatsoever. That he had been raised in a very, very wealthy home and was very much at home with his life in England. Became a great cricket player when he was at Cambridge University. Came to faith in a real way but now was going to be a successful Christian athlete, student, and who knows what else, in an aristocratic, wealthy family in England. And he read a tract written by an atheist. Any of you who have my Revolution book, that tract is in there. He read a tract written by an atheist who basically said, if I believed what you believed... Religion, that's how he put it, would be my only thought day and night. And no sacrifice would be too great to go and tell other people about this message if there was really eternal life and eternal death. And he basically put out a challenge to say to religious people, obviously you don't believe what you preach. There was a story about a man who was about to be executed in England. And the prison chaplain came to read the Scriptures to him. And this guy scorned it, wouldn't have it, and didn't take the chaplain seriously either. He said, if if I really believe what was written in that book, he said, then I would crawl across England on my hands and knees on broken glass to reach one person to warn them about hell. C.T. Studd read this track by an atheist and realized his life was not consistent. God may call you to live in a wealthy part of the city and and to become a billionaire and to generate hundreds of millions of dollars for the poor and for charity. Who knows? Or raise you up to have a great testimony that goes through the nation. God uses people in all walks of life. There was one ministry I was never that keen on, and I I kind of judged in terms of it, it seemed carnal in their emphasis. Then I found out that one of my dear colleagues with one of the greatest world missions evangelistic works in the world for many, many years drew much of his support from that ministry. That they generated a lot of money and they gave it away to help missions around the world. But C.T. Studd read that track and said, this is not consistent. My life is not consistent. With what the Bible says, with what I say I believe, with the way I'm living, it's not consistent. And he ended up going as a missionary to China and then ultimately to Africa where he lived the rest of his life. And you'll see in books about him, here's where he used to live, here's where he lived and died in Africa. And Studd was a real soldier You could still just get online and put in his name, C.T. Stud, S-T-U-D-D. Search for the Chocolate Soldier. One of his radical little books. Chocolate Soldier, just a chocolate figurine. Looks so neat, but it's just made of chocolate. And it's just going to melt, and it's gooey, and it's nothing. And he said basically a lot of Christians are just like chocolate soldiers. No courage and no heroism. And he wrote a poem which had this as a stanza. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. See, if you leave here and go on the mission field, as some of the families and individuals from here are doing, and relocate to a place like northern Iraq, well, you're there for one reason only. You're not there because it's the best place to raise your kids. You're not there because you prefer the food. You're, 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 you're there to make a difference for Jesus, to make a difference for the kingdom. And although there's still an assignment, and there's still accountability, at least there have been major life decisions to cause you to live in light of eternity. But those of us who are based here have to have a deeper challenge because there's so many things we can get caught up with that are of secondary importance. There's so many things we can get caught up with, and at the end of the day, they're just going to go up in smoke. I would rather stand before God and Him tell me, you know, son, you were were a little too radical in some of your commitments. You know, it would have been okay to see the movie Bambi. I'm just using that as a make-believe example. I'd rather he said that to me than that he said to me, you fool, you squandered your whole life. Remember that what the world calls fanaticism and much of the church calls extremism, God calls normal. One of my Swedish friends was visited by a brother from Africa who went to meeting after meeting with him and service after service with him. And he said to him, No wonder the church in America is in the state that it's in. Because after every meeting, they had a meal or something or went out. And he said, All you do is feast, all we do is fast. Now, no condemnation if you're planning on having a meal together tonight. I was planning on some snacks back at my hotel. But people often come over and they see American Christianity and there are certain things that we're often very generous, more generous than other countries and often hospitable and good spirit in these certain ways. But we're just so caught up with the spirit of the age. Look, there, there, are, there are churches across the country that adjust their schedules based on the National Football League. And you know, we... Friends have told me living in certain parts of the country, I'm sure if we lived in the Green Bay area, maybe even more than here because of being smaller and more focused on the team. was telling me where they live just service the whole talk, like Sunday, before or after, is about the game. If you're hanging out, especially with the guys, before the service, it's the main talk about the game. And it's perfectly acceptable. And earlier this year, Green Bay was, was victimized by a, a bad call by the replacement referees. Those that don't follow it, the National Football League has lots of rules and it's very complicated and the league couldn't come to grips with its paid officials so they brought in these replacement officials that just were not up to par. It would be like people that are supposed to be controlling the traffic in the city during rush hour and they don't know what they're doing and you're having all these car accidents and. People getting late to work by two hours. And so people were getting frustrated. And finally, there was one game, and I happened to see the end of that game. Green Bay against Seattle. And, and it was a, a call completely blown by the officials. Completely blew it. And Green Bay lost the game as a result of it. And there was outrage. I mean, I, I just out of curiosity, I looked to see an hour later, what are they talking about? on the Sports Network, and that's all they're talking about. I went online just to see, and that's all they're talking about. Outrage, outrage. And within the week, they struck up a contract, the league with the regular officials, and they were back. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm sure there's more moral outrage among believers, especially male believers, across America over that blown call, than there's moral outrage if if there are 10,000 victims of human trafficking in our city if cults and false religions are taking people captive by the hour. There's more moral outrage over some carnal, meaningless thing. Meaningless. In the scope of eternity. Really, in the scope of normal life. Meaningless. And as I point out to the ladies too, the new carpet is also meaningless. <laughs> I've been praying for that carpet for years. And you just... Okay, praise God. Maybe it was a miraculous answer to prayer and, and the Lord's blessed you with that new car. So, for you, I don't want to trivialize that. But hear what I'm saying in all seriousness. If we're here in America, if we're here in the midst of this society, even with the challenges and pressures and difficult economy and everything else going on, the fact of the matter is, it's very easy to just get caught up with American Christianity. And we're showing up at a meeting or two and then trying to live our lives in a way that's not as bad as the world as opposed to saying, we're here on a mission. We're here on a mission. The reason I mentioned before so-called full-time ministry is because all of us are called by God and all of us will give account to God. And, And the purpose of apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers is to prepare God's people for works of service, for works of ministry. So I just ask you these few questions and I'm done. When Paul says that we're all in a race and we should run so as to win, what's the race you're in? Why are you here? Why are you here? Maybe you can't tell me about ten years from now, or your ultimate life, destiny, and calling. But why are you here? And please don't tell me it's so that you don't hurt anyone. You ever shared the gospel with someone and their basic response is, I don't to hurt anybody. And let me tell you this, even if you've been fragile and and up and down in the Lord, God's purpose for you is bigger than don't backslide. God has more for you than surviving. Maybe you're just getting off drugs or drink and getting your life together in those first few weeks or months. That is the goal. Don't backslide. But hey, that's not who we are anymore. Why are you here? Why are you here? The Lord came to you and said, why are you Mike, why are you here? What's your purpose? What's your purpose? Are you in a race? What is that race? What's that assignment? Even if it's for this season of life, if it's just for this year, what's this assignment? When we're coming to the end of the year, many people reflect and look at life and ask questions. What's your assignment? We got a former NFL football player here and he could tell you great length what Every play, every player has a specific assignment. And, and one guy blows their assignment, it blows it for the whole play, and it could blow it for the whole team for the whole game. That one play could be pivotal. Don't minimize your role just because it's not public. Don't, don't minimize your role just because other people don't recognize it. And in, even if outwardly it's insignificant, it's significant to the Lord. Yes. And, and Paul explains in First Corinthians 12 that, that the parts of our body that, that we cover up, that there's modesty behind it, and there's a reason for it, and there's a special importance to it. So, you know, we might look at the hand and look at how important the hand is, but... The heart that's beating on the inside you can't see is more important than the hand. You can live without a hand. You can't live without a heart. Are you in a race? If I said, okay, can you write down in the sentence what God's purpose for your life is now, What your divine assignment is? What's the race that you're in? Can you write it down? doesn't matter how successful you are, how much progress, do you know what it is? Then Paul says... That we should be running. Are you running? I'm not asking if there's carnal pressure on you. That's that's the wrong kind of pressure. There's a there's a holy pressure because the clock is ticking and the world is dying. And we we have a certain amount of time to make a difference and to explore the possibilities of who God is and what He can do through yielded vessels. Are you running so as to win? You, know, you, can, you can get on the scale and, and see your physical weight. You can do that. If, if you're an athlete in competition, you can measure where you are against someone else. If you're in school, you can take a test and assess where you are. But often spiritually, we can coast for years and years and years and never examine ourselves. Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 13, examine yourself. See whether you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. If I knew that one day I was going to have a big test, then I would welcome all the quizzes. When, when, When boxers engage in their violent sport, unless they're heavyweights, they have weight limits that they have to be at. And sometimes the contract will say, that one month out, you have to be at this weight. In other words, to make sure you're going to meet your weight on this day, one month out, you need to be at this weight. We should welcome the, the scrutiny of the Spirit. We, sh- we should take time and reflect before the Lord. If you're one that tends to be very self-condemning, then have someone with some encouragement and faith with you to, to help you look at life so that you don't strangle yourself. I mean, spiritually speaking. Why are you here? If everything stopped right now, this was it. God said, okay, we're done. Everybody's finished. You're going to be going home tomorrow to meet the Lord. We're going to look right now and see where you're at. Would you be like, no, 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 like 2013 was going to be my year, Lord. (laughs) No, I'm telling you, I was right after Thanksgiving. I was going on this long fast. Oh, God, I mean, as soon as I got out of school next year, I was going to knock on every door in my neighborhood and win people to Jesus. I was going to do it. I was about to. I'm 57. And I don't feel like I thought I'd feel at 57, meaning when I was 16... I was amazed; people were still breathing at 57. Well, I mean, not quite that, but that—that was like really old. And I saw someone with gray hair, gray mustache, like me. That person was really old. But you know, as you get older, you don't—you don't end up feeling like that. You still feel like a kid on the inside. And I have energy, and I've got vitality, and I've got vision. But I'm thinking, okay, I want to run hard, and I can run hard now. I'm not 97. I'm 57. I can run hard now. But, realistically, even if Jesus didn't come in my lifetime, and I live to be 97, realistically, I'm not going to be running as hard at 97 as 57. I want to seize these moments and years that I have. And you want to take advantage of whatever situation you're in, you're never going to pass through it again. And there are blessed situations with secular work and burdens and kids, and their blessed situations and full-time, quote, Ministry, their blessed situations with older kids and being single, you've got to seize each opportunity. You can't be waiting for this magical tomorrow. I'm going to close in a moment, but, you know, when you're young, teenager, college age, 20s, the devil comes to you and says, you're too young. You can't do anything for God. You're nobody. You got no experience. You got no wisdom. You can't do anything for God. You're too young. And then you're kind of middle-aged. The devil says, look, right now you're in the middle. of you got family, all these responsibilities. You get a little bit older, that's your season to really shine. When you get older, the devil says, you're old and washed up. It's too late for you. I mean, we all, it's always tomorrow we're going to make these great impacts for God. Always tomorrow we're going to be world changers. There's a book, it's, it's still in print. I checked on it some time ago. I think the title was, I'll I'll Teach My Dog a Hundred Words. And it's one of the books that we read to our daughters when they were little and we were teaching them to read. And there's this guy who's going to teach his dog a hundred words and as the book progresses, he starts teaching the dog. To sit and stand and jump and, you know, all just different vocabulary. And this dog's amazing. And then you get to the last page and there's the guy sleeping under the tree with the dog sleeping next to him. And the last page is, I'll teach my dog a hundred words. Tomorrow. He's just dreaming about it. He's got all these plans. Look, you can live and die like that. Years back in Pensacola, schedule being what it was, no excuse but just explaining. I wasn't exercising as much. Sometimes I'd eat one meal a day, but it was not a good meal and it was late at night or just whatever. So I put on a little weight. And Nancy noticed. he said, she said I think you put a little weight on. I said, "No, I, I haven't, but I got a plan." She goes, oh, "Okay." I mean, her first thing she's thinking of was just my health, you know, be in better health, and then second, just be a good, disciplined witness. Said, oh, maybe like six months go by. She said, no, "Hun, I don't think you lost any weight." I said, "No, actually, I haven't. I haven't. You're right, but I have a plan." She goes, "Oh, okay." <laughs> like six months, a year later, she said, "Hun, I think you've actually put some weight on." I said, no, "You're absolutely right. I have." but I have a plan. And she said, your plan is not working. (laughs) I've spoken at pastor's meetings and said that's a prophetic word for many of you in your churches. Your plan is not working. Let's be sober about this. There's so much God has for us. And there's so much He wants to do through us. And there's so much He wants to give to us. And if we're faithful with little, Luke 16, He'll make us faithful with much. If we're faithful with earthly riches, He'll entrust us with spiritual riches. If we're faithful in that which belongs to somebody else, He'll entrust us with that which belongs to ourselves. So we're going to give account one day. All of us. Husbands, wives, take some time. Pray, think, reflect together before the Lord. And be encouraged. Yeah, by God's grace, we're going for it. We just want to please you more. Or let it be a sober wake-up call and a turnaround so that we can live with sobriety in the midst of this journey that we have and we can run our race so as to win. Amen? Close your eyes with me. Thank You, Lord. Thank You, Father. Thank You, Father. Lord, we love You. We love You. And I pray for each one here. For any that need major adjustment, may this Word be an absolute wake-up call. May this Word be a time for turnaround. May this Word renew calls that have been given in years past that have not been heeded. Lord, those on track, encourage, strengthen with Your smile. Let us hear that well done even today. Those who need a wake-up call, may we hear it, not to condemn, but to help us get on with the race. And Lord, we rebuke the lie that it's too late. We rebuke that lie that it's too late. You've fallen too far. you failed too much. We rebuke that lie in Jesus' name. And we declare that the future is as bright as Your promises. And as we yield ourselves to You, You can cause in five years to happen what would normally take 50 years. You can restore what sin or the devil or our foolishness has taken away. May we all hear, everyone in this room tonight, and every child in the next room, may every one of us here on that great day, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your Master's joy. In Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Just keep your eyes closed. If this was a salvation call, I'd just do it completely openly. But if if God's really dealing with you in a strong way through this message, I just want to pray specially for you. So that's you. Just, just raise your hand if there's a strong waking up in your own heart. Thanks. You can put your hands down. Anybody else? Thank you, Lord. Anybody else? There's no condemnation, but it is a sober word. You can put your hands down. Anybody else? Father, I'm appealing to you for help. Because some of us have been around this mountain over and over again. Some of us have made determinations over and over again only to fall short or to find ourselves in the same rut or distracted the same way. So, God, I pray that your fire would burn so brightly. I pray that your spirit would work so deeply. I pray that your power would come in such a real way into each of these lives that even on a a day where they're not thinking about it, You'd be lovingly pushing them. You'd be lovingly calling them. And Lord, that You'd give them a heart to respond. And as they do, may it become a holy addiction, a holy habit. Just a pattern of service and obedience by Your grace, Father. Finish what You start in us. We confess that You who began the good work will bring it to completion. We throw ourselves in Your arms. Thanking You, Lord, for Your enablement. And with Your help and grace, we run our race. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank You, Lord. Thank You, Jesus. Those that need further shots in the arm encouragement, remember, go to my website. Like I said, there are thousands of hours of free materials. Turn into the radio program or subscribe by podcast. you will get prompted, encouraged, and strengthened. And um, I'll mention something in a moment about resources in the back. Uh, but because this is our last night, we've got a few things left, we'll, we'll cut you a, a special deal on stuff that's left. I'm Jewish. It won't be that good a deal. But, <laughs> no, we'll, uh, we'll try to be a blessing to you if, if we can. But uh, Jeff's just going to share one thing with you, then I'll, I'll make a quick announcement and we're out of here. Thanks. Thank you. What was it? You can say that because you're Jewish, but if, if I said it'd be anti-Semitic. Yes. That, okay, just making sure. Uh, listen, we're going to take a special offering for Dr. Brown, and um, you know.